0: of them with your insert, just fill it out. You can turn it in at the Welcome Center, you can give it to me afterwards, and we'll get you signed up. And then next Sunday, Bob Russell from Louisville, Kentucky, who will be the keynote on Saturday, he's going to be with us to preach the morning services. He's going to be teaching a combined Sunday school hour in the Family Life Center. He is one of the absolute giants in the Christian church over the last 50 years. His story is uh, unprecedented in many ways, and we're really blessed to have him With A couple other events to highlight. Families at first, we only have two Wednesdays left. Why not come out for one of the two or both? And then Ladies Night Out, a week from Thursday night. It's a great time to fellowship. Well, what is Easter? Last week we spent the Sunday talking about Easter, and that's a question I want to ask you today. What is Easter? Well, of course, Easter is the story of Jesus Christ overcoming death. It's not the Easter bunny. It's not family dinners, although we have fun with Easter egg hunts and our kids get candy and we have a good time gathering with family, but Easter at its very core is Victory Day. It's Celebration Day, the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It's the very heart of the, gospel. the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, we talked a little bit about 1 Corinthians 15 last week. At the very beginning of this long, long chapter on the resurrection, he tells us what's most important about the faith. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 3. He says, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is most important, he is saying. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And if you've been in in our church or probably any church for any amount of time, you've probably been told that the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's victory. That's our story. That's the gospel. That's the very heart of our message And so the hero of Easter, of course, is who? It's Jesus, Jesus Christ, who overcame death. And because he overcame death, we can overcome death. Not a physical death on this earth, but an eternal death. We have the hope of eternal life. However, what I want to do today is I want to help you see the impact of two very ordinary religious dudes Nick and Joe. They're, they're very, very ordinary, but their legacy cannot be undervalued. I would call them the heroes of Easter in so many ways because of the actions that they took in burying Jesus Christ. It allows us with confidence to gather every year on Easter Sunday and proclaim, He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives. And the really cool thing about this is that these two very ordinary guys, Joe and Nick, they didn't even realize the impact of their actions. I would call them in many ways accidental heroes. Heroes by accident. And that's really cool. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John. If you want to grab a pew Bible, if you didn't bring your own Bible, John uh, starts in the 1048, 1049 range. We're going to start in John chapter 3, which is on page 1051 in the pew Bible. And I want to help you understand the legacy of these two very ordinary religious guys that literally helped us have confidence that Jesus truly is. Rose again. Well, Nick and Joe were part of a group called the Pharisees. How many of you have heard of the Pharisees? A lot of us have heard of the Pharisees that they were part of the first century religious order of being righteous. If you asked a Pharisee, what do you do? You know what they would probably say? I'm just good. That's what I do. I'm just good. I keep the law. I know the law. I study the law. I memorize the law. I keep the law, I am good. And yet within this group of Pharisees, we, we learn from John that there was a group of them that were secretly following Jesus. They were secretly admiring Jesus. They didn't let anybody know about it. They had way, way, way too much to lose. But they were, they were captivated by him. They were, they were drawn in to his teaching. Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, the end of Matthew chapter 7, he gives us maybe a hint as to what was so appealing about Jesus. After Jesus preached this incredible Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not like all the other teachers that they'd heard, not like all the other rabbis that they'd heard. Jesus came to town, and people showed up because they were amazed as teaching. So this secret group of followers, this secret group of Pharisees, they get together, and they say, we need to know more about this Jesus. Jesus. We need to know more about who he really is and what his message is really about, and, and more than likely they got together, and Nicodemus was the one. Nick, from our story, Nicodemus was the one that was chosen to go and try to find more uh, find out more about Jesus. So grab your Bible, John chapter three. We see that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This is verse one, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. That's very odd. That's very rare, especially in this culture. Any intellectual gathering or religious instruction would never take place at night. You would never try to go find more from from a rabbi at night. He's doing it because what? He doesn't want anyone else to know. He's on a secret mission he's a secret disciple and look at what he says he says rabbi we know not i we know you are a teacher and you've come from god no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if god were not with him and he's just getting ready to ask jesus a question and jesus does something that's incredibly incredibly frustrating to him he answers his question before he ever asks it. Look at what Jesus says next. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Have you ever had that happen, parents? Where, where, where your daughter or your son comes in and they're, they're kind of sweet-talking you. and You, you know they're get, getting ready to, to say, can I spend the night at my friend's house? Or can I go to the park and play with my friends? And before the words even come out of the mouth, what do you say? No, you can't do that today. It just takes the wind out of their sails. Nicodemus can't believe it. Jesus has answered the question before he's ever even asked it. Someone must be born again if he's going to see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus can't really fathom that answer. How can an adult, how can someone like me, a really smart religious dude, I know the law, I've studied the law. I've memorized the law. I live the law. How can I be born again? He asked that question in verse 9. And Jesus has a great comeback. He goes, you are Israel's teacher? You are Israel's teacher? It's like when someone really smart in your life can't figure something out, and you look at him and you say, you're the valedictorian? You're the salutator? You're the genius? Really? But Nicodemus, he, he, he wants to know more. And, and so they gather together, they study more, and then Jesus has what's going to be our key verse in John chapter 3. It's a verse that, that you may not understand at first. It's all the way down in verse 14. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life what in the world is that just as moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness do any of you have any idea at all what jesus is talking about here anybody guess what nicodemus did he knew exactly what jesus was referring to you have to go all the way back to numbers chapter 21 if you're a quick bible flipper you can go to numbers 21 really quickly And the Israelites, they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're being big crybabies. They're whining, there's not enough food, there's not enough drink, we don't like the desert, blah, 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 blah. And they camp for the night, and the Lord says, enough is enough. And guess what he sends? Snakes. All kinds of snakes. Snakes are everywhere. They're in the tents. They're near the campfire. They're biting babies and children and men and women and numbers 21 says that many israelites were struck down and they died by these deadly snakes and the people wake up moses and they're like you're sleeping through this catastrophe you're sleeping through this crisis what are we supposed to do and so moses does a really smart thing what's he do he asks god what are we supposed to do and god's solution kind of odd if you ask me He says, melt down some bronze, make a bronze snake, attach it to a big pole, hold it up high in the air, and anyone who gazes on that bronze snake will be saved. Their life will be saved. And Numbers 21 says that many, many Israelites were saved simply by looking at that bronze snake. That's a a bizarre chapter in God's Word. That's a bizarre, bizarre account in Israel's past. But when Jesus said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Nicodemus knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew exactly the account from the wilderness wanderings. But he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and it's right there that nicodemus probably starts to worry a little bit because what jesus is telling him in john chapter 3 is i'm not just a rabbi i'm not just a teacher i'm not just a prophet i'm not just a guy that knows a whole lot of religion who's he calling himself there Son of man. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And it's at this point that Nicodemus and his posse, his crew, must have realized it's going to really be tough to be a secret disciple. It's really going to be tough to keep one foot in the religious world, the, the Pharisaical world and one foot following Jesus. But here's what I want you to catch from our scripture that's up on the screen. Jesus said that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And my guess is Nicodemus said, whoa, 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 what do you mean everyone who believes? Don't you mean everyone who behaves? My life as a religious genius, is all about being good, doing the right thing, behaving in the correct way. And Jesus says, it's not about behaving, it's about believing. Catch that this morning. If you catch nothing else, if you've got an Easter hangover, or you're tired, or whatever's going on, catch this. That's the heart of the gospel. It's not about being good. It's about believing. That Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. It's about believing that Jesus Christ died for you, was buried, and rose on the third day. Jesus says here, it's not just about behaving, it's about believing. Well, reading through John, John chapter 4, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, into John chapter 7, Jesus' legacy begins to build. And more and more people begin to follow after him. And guess what the Pharisees do? They get more and more frustrated. They get more and more worried that this isn't just kind of a flash in the pan. This isn't just kind of a one-hit wonder. This guy, Jesus, this teacher, this rabbi, he's got quite a following. People are beginning to, to, to throw down their nets and follow after him. People are beginning to just flock to him and whatever he says, they're drawn to it. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He seems like he's pretty unique. And the Pharisees are worried. They're saying, we've got an awful lot to lose. And so the Pharisees finally say enough is enough, and they gather together their temple guard. It was kind of like their own little military unit. Now, when you think military in first century world, what military do we think of? Romans, right? And, and the Romans were big, and they were bad, and they took care of business, and you didn't mess with them, or they just wiped out your whole city. Temple guard's nothing like this. Temple guard would be like Ernie and Jim and Adam with a helmet and a sword, okay? that's kind of a, it's a bad comparison, but I mean, just a teeny little, little army there. You know, not, not the big Romans, but they grab the temple guard together, and they say, Go find this Jesus and arrest him. We're getting sick and tired of his message. And so the temple guard take off and the Pharisees, they're hanging out and, you know, they're talking with each other. And, you know, if they were in Clinton, they might be playing a couple hands of euchre or something along those lines. And the day's almost over and the temple guard comes back and they're all alone. They didn't arrest Jesus. They're like, what happened? Couldn't you find him? Oh, no. They say, we found him. And they say, why didn't you arrest him? And I love what the temple guard has to say in John chapter 7. They say, No one has ever taught like he has. And the Pharisees, they look at him, they say, you morons, he's tricked you as well? Are you so stupid that you couldn't just follow directions? And it's at that moment that Nicodemus makes a second appearance in our gospel account. It's at that moment that Nicodemus utters just really some, uh, some, um, Very sensitive words where he he just says, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Basically saying, You guys have already condemned him, and we haven't even talked to him yet. We haven't even spent time with him yet. We haven't even had a conversation yet. And they throw down on Nicodemus Are you one of his followers? Has he fooled you as well? The legacy is beginning to build. Well, from this point, Jesus' ministry, just, it just absolutely takes off. It just skyrockets. And in John chapter 8, many of you know this account. There's a woman that is caught in adultery, and I mean caught in adultery, and they drag her to the center of the village, and they're getting ready to stone her to death, and they're like, come here, big Jesus, come on over here. This woman's been caught in adultery, and the law of Moses says we kill her right now. We stone her to death right now. What say you? And Jesus is in a bind. Because if he says, let her go, they're going to say, you're soft on the law. You don't really follow the law of Moses. And if he says, stone her, they're going to say, there's nothing special about you. You're overseeing her execution. And Jesus does a radical thing. He stoops down in the sand and starts to write. And then he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Just one by one, vamoose. They are gone. They are out of there. They don't know what to do. Before long, it's just adultery woman and Jesus. And Jesus says, where's your accusers? She says, they're all gone. He says, I condemn you neither. Now go, leave your life of sin. And the crowds are like, wow. In John chapter 9, there's a man that was born blind. And there's this big debate going on about him. Who who sinned? Was, Was he the sinner before he was born? Or were his parents sinners that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither is the case. He's born blind because I'm getting ready to do a miracle. And he says, put some mud on your eyes and wash in the pool. And the next thing you know, the man born blind can see. And the crowds are saying, he is something special. John chapter 11, one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, dies. And Jesus had a chance to go and see him before he died, but he didn't leave right away. He stayed and continued to preach. He stayed and continued to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. He stayed and and, and continued to touch hurting people. And he showed up at the village four days after Lazarus had died. And Mary and Martha, the sisters, they are ticked at him. They're saying, Jesus, if you really loved him, if you really loved us, you would have come right away. And Jesus says, chill out. Hold on. It's all part of the big plan. And he goes to the tomb and he says, uh, go ahead and roll away the stone. And the people are like, Jesus, let me just tell you something. The body's been in the tomb for four days. If you roll that stone away, you're going to smell something you don't want to smell. The King James Version actually says, but Lord, it stinketh in there. It stinketh is right, but Jesus says, roll the tomb away. And Lazarus gets up, and he walks out, and the crowds... Go crazy. They go wild. They realize he's not just an ordinary rabbi. He's not just an ordinary teacher. He's raising people from the dead. And it's at this point that the Pharisees realize they got a huge crisis on their hands. Look at John 11, verse 48. Talking with one another, they say, If we let this Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe him and what do they say then the romans are coming to town and they're going to do away with him and they're going to do away with us we're going to have big big trouble on our hands and so for the rest of the gospel of john we see the unthinkable become a reality we see jesus christ be arrested he's accused He's condemned to die by crucifixion. And before long, Friday has arrived, and they are literally nailing the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, perfect in every way, fully God, fully man. they're nailing him to the cross. And it's at this point that the secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph and others, and The family, Mary, mother of Jesus, and and the siblings are sitting there, and they're, they're watching the accounts. And they probably said to themselves something like this. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. How can he go from raising a man from the dead to being nailed to a cross? To be crucified. All the oxygen has left the room. Sadness reigns. And is out-in-the-open disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and they're out of there. They're fleeing. Their world's come crumbling down. And it's at this point that I believe Nick and Joe see something that everyone else is missing. My guess is they, they secretly made their way to the site of the crucifixion, that, that hill. And as they walked up on the hill, and they saw the body of Jesus nailed to the cross, being raised up, Nicodemus had a flashback. And he remembered back to John chapter 3, verse 14, where it said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and he watched jesus being lifted up on the cross and the light bulb was illuminated that that's what he meant now i get it the son of man must be lifted up the son of man must be lifted up and he probably remembered the words of the prophet isaiah From 700 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied about the Messiah, but a lot of people thought Isaiah was off his rocker because the Jews had thought all along that when the Messiah finally comes, it will be a majestic coming. It will be a powerful coming. It will be a military-like campaign like the world had never seen. And Isaiah said things like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they get it. They understand it before anybody else gets it. He had to come to die. And it's at that point, I believe that, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus realize there is no turning back. There is no holding back. We're all in. If people get mad at us, they get mad at us. If people kick us out of the cool religious club, we're out of the cool religious club. But there is no turning back. And John 19, verse 38, reads like this. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, this was very, very rare. The Romans had this crucifixion thing down. And and they had, uh, more than anything else as an agenda, they wanted to deter future criminals from acting. So when a criminal died on the cross by crucifixion, they would leave them on the cross, not for hours, but for days. And when the days had passed, and the smell was more than anyone could take, they would pry those dead bodies off the cross, they'd throw them in a big wagon, and they'd take them to a big garbage dump called Gehenna. Valley of Gehenna, and they'd throw these bodies in the garbage dump just to rot. Rats would come in. I mean, it's a disgusting, disgusting sight. And Joseph and Nicodemus said, that's not happening here. So they go to Pilate, and they ask for the body. Now listen, Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. Because he feared the Jewish leaders. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. They brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. 75 pounds. Huge, huge amount of spices. Taking the body of Jesus, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden in which, uh, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Joseph and Nicodemus, Joe and Nick, gave Jesus a proper burial. Now, they did this for a couple of reasons. They did this, number one, because he was dead, and he was pretty special, and they wanted to honor him in a great way. But by doing this, they ensured that for 2,000 years, we would be able to, with confidence, on Easter Sunday morning, say, he truly died, he was buried properly, and he rose again their careful care for the body of jesus provided irrefutable proof for first century christ followers that jesus had in fact risen from the dead see if they wouldn't have done that and you know they'd let jesus hang on the cross and they they scrape his body off and they throw him in the, the the garbage dump in gehenna and he comes walking into town three days later he's got some rat bites here i mean that would be remarkable But that'd be explainable, wouldn't it? What what would people say? He never really died. He's just hanging out in the garbage dump. But by going through the proper burial procedure, there was no doubt that he had died. And there was no doubt that he had rose again. And how fitting is it, my friends, that the man who Jesus said, you must be born again, has paved the way for generations of people to believe that Jesus rose again there's a great irony in that and so the point of this message this morning i hope is crystal clear to you joe and nick figured out something before anyone else they figured out that eternal life isn't a reward for good people And, and that's what the pharisees thought it was do a whole bunch of good things it's like a report card you know how you live in your life on monday check How are you living your life on Tuesday? Check. Are you giving your money at the tabernacle or the temple? Check. That was their idea. Do a bunch of good things, and if you do enough good things, you get to go to heaven. And they were the first ones to figure out. That's not what it's about. It's God's gift to forgiven people. And I want to close this morning with Romans 6.23. Now, we know this inside and outside NIV, but I love the message translation of part two of this scripture. He says, God's gift is real life. It's eternal life delivered by Jesus, our master. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the legacy of these Easter heroes. Thank you for their willingness to, uh, to say, I'll no longer be a secret disciple. I'll no longer follow Jesus secretly. But to step up, to do what many thought was the unthinkable, to ask and and to receive the body, to provide a, a proper burial, so that when that awesome Sunday morning happened and the tomb was opened and Jesus walked out, there was no doubt. Jesus rose again. Hallelujah. Praise you. Thank you for Jesus, for the hope that he brings us. And help us to never fall into that trap of trying to be secret disciples ourselves. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What a great line at the end of that.